Father, we come once more to you because we know, Lord, without you, uh, we can do nothing. So we pray, Lord, that you would bless our time together in your word, that it would be uh, to us uh, like manna, that it would satisfy our souls, and also, Lord, that from it we would see how we need to change and grow. Lord, would you, even now, would you uh, cause our love for Christ to continue to increase, especially as we look at a character uh, for which love for Jesus was non-existent. Lord, we don't want to be like him. So help us, Father, to learn from him um, and to live for you from the inside out. And Lord, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We'll turn in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. Chapter 3, over the past few Sundays, we've been working our way through verse 13 down to verse 19 uh, under the theme of the call of the 12 apostles. And what we've seen so far is that when Jesus selected these 12 men, uh, that it was a sovereign, (coughs) excuse me, strategic and a surprising choice. To put it mildly, These men were far, very far, uh, from being exceptional. They were perfectly ordinary, but actually more than that, they were just outright, unlikely candidates for the job of apostleship. Their resumes were unimpressive. They were common country laborers for the most part, as we've seen. None of them were theologically trained. None of them influential, none of them from the upper echelons of society. Now that was their resume, utterly unimpressive. And their character was equally unimpressive. Now Peter, for example, was brash and overbearing, prone to vacillation and generally unbearable. That's the kind of guy you don't want for a neighbor. And that was Peter. James and John also had serious issues that we saw. As soon as they were given just a little bit authority, they seized power and started uh, you know, wanting to call down fire from heaven to wipe out their opposition. The other men were as equally unqualified and unimpressive. They were proud, thick-headed, slow to learn, and from a human vantage point, they were just odd, unlikely, unexpected candidates for the office of apostle. Remember, to be an apostle was to be a, uh, a representative of God on earth, to be Jesus' official delegate, representative. You wouldn't want Peter to be your representative. I wouldn't. But Jesus did uh, because he was going to transform these men and make them to be uh, what they, he wanted them to be. He saw in them something that other people couldn't see. They were unlikely selections for an office that was so prestigious and significant. Yet, these were the men Jesus chose. In verse 13 of chapter 3, if you're there, verse 13 is crystal clear that Jesus chose these men because they were the very men He desired. They were the ones He wanted. And it's shocking from our human sensibilities. Right? It's shocking to our, from our perspective that they were the ones he chose. From the world's perspective, these men appear to be foolish, weak, and worthy of zero consideration. But from the Lord's perspective, from Jesus' vantage point, these men were precious. They were his delight. Foolish, proud, unlikely as they were, they were the men upon whom the Lord Jesus set his affections. And they were the ones appointed to be apostles. And the call to apostleship was first and foremost, as we've seen, it was a call to relationship with Jesus. They were to be with him and to learn from him. It's a heightened intimacy. And second, it was a call to be his human agents on earth. And what we see in familiar passages like 1 Corinthians 1, 25 to 31, is that these weak, ordinary men were called to do the work of apostleship because God's strategy, as we have seen and as we know, was to demonstrate His power 
his ability through the incompetence and the weakness of these 12 ordinary men. That's God's strategy. It was then, and it remains to be his strategy today. Not many of you were noble, significant, uh, excellent. Not many of you were from the upper echelons of society, but God calls the things that were not to shame the things that are. It's 1 Corinthians 1. So, this then, the call of the twelve, was a, a sovereign call, a strategic call, and it was an especially, I think, surprising call. And that's where we spent our time last week. And there's one more point that I didn't get to about the surprising nature of the call of the twelve apostles. And so my hope is to get through that last subpoint with you this morning, and it's in verse 19. But before we get there, why don't you stand with me? And we'll begin reading in Mark 3, verse 13. Mark 3, verse 13. And he went up on the mountain, this Jesus, and he summoned those whom he himself wanted. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, James, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. And Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot. Verse 19, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. You may be seated. So our focus this morning is on verse 19. In every list of the twelve apostles, Judas Iscariot is the last man. His name always has a similar appendage or description to it. In fact, in the book of Acts, Judas is left out altogether. But in the Gospels, there's always a description about Judas. In Mark and in Matthew's Gospel, it's Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. In Luke, it's Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. Of all the surprising aspects of the call of the twelve, the fact that Judas Iscariot was called to be a part of this apostolic team, to me, stands above all the other surprises. That Judas could have been such a vital player so near to Jesus and then defect is not only one of the most surprising things about this narrative, but it's one of the most surprising things in all of history. In fact, no individual has ever committed such an unspeakably heinous sin as Judas did when he betrayed Jesus into the hands of the Sanhedrin. In his treachery, Judas was betraying the perfect, sinless Son of God for two hands full of silver. No single act by an individual has ever been more grisly, more atrocious than Judas's betrayal of the incarnation of love itself. Mark doesn't detail the event for us here. He does in chapter 14. But in verse 19, all he gives us is an ominous allusion to what's coming. Judas, who betrayed him. You know the story of Judas's betrayal, but I want us to look at it together uh, because Mark gives us a, a brief description, and I want us to look at it a little more carefully, and hopefully at the end of it to make some uh, observations, really warnings uh, from the life of Judas. So turn with me to Ma- uh, Matthew 26. We're going to flip back and forth from Matthew, Luke, John, and Mark together. We want to look at Matthew 26, and we'll begin in verse 36 to see the story of Judas's betrayal from Matthew's perspective. 
Verse 36, then Jesus came with them, that's the 11, came with the 11 to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, we know them, James and John, and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them, and he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching. And praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so Jesus goes away to pray for a second time, and then a third time. And each time he comes back and he finds that his men, that he is investing in, that he's called to be his representatives, that these men, and actually it's the three men who sort of rose to the top, men who form his inner circle, These three men don't have enough spiritual steel in their spine to perceive the urgency of the moment and to stay with Jesus in prayer, and so they keep falling asleep. So in verse 45, then he came to the disciples, this is the third time, and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? They didn't get the urgency of what was happening. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. And before he could get the words out of his mouth, verse 47 says, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs. I just it strikes me. Judas, one of the twelve. It's a statement that heightens the magnitude of Judas's offense. He wasn't an outsider. He was a man who was intimate with the twelve, with Jesus. An intimate friend. The crowd comes up. This is most likely the temple guard. Since the the next phrase says that they had been sent by the chief priests and the elders of Israel. And clearly they're looking for a fight because they have their tools with them. And they're ready to wipe out any opposition. And at the head of the crowd is Judas. Probably shocking to the eleven. Where was Judas? Why is he with them? Look at verse 48. Now he who was betraying him, now this is a little bit of background that Matthew gives. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. This is behind the scenes. Here's the sign. The sign is a kiss. So when I go up to that person and kiss them, that's the one, take him. Now, a kiss in the ancient world was a sign of special affection. It was a way of displaying love and tenderness and devotion and commitment and loyalty. And of all the signs that Judas could have chosen, he chose a kiss, a sign of loyalty to betray Jesus. So in verse 49, immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. Literally, greetings, my teacher. And the kiss is effectively nonverbal communication. I love you. I'm committed to you. I'm devoted to you. It's painful painful scene 
But as painful as it is for us to picture it, don't imagine, I I just don't imagine that Judas uh, was trembling at all. I don't think it was difficult for Judas to be so treacherous. The reason I say that is because Judas was well-practiced. He had been feigning love and loyalty to Jesus for so long that by this point, he had perfected the art of hypocrisy. And this was simply the crowning achievement of his acting career. He had perfected the art of saying one thing, I love you, I'm committed to you, and then actually meaning another thing in his heart. And that's what it means to be a hypocrite. Literally, it's to create a public impression that is at odds with one's real purposes and motives. It's to create a public impression that is at odd with one's real motives. That's what actors do. We see that. And Judas would have effectively won an Oscar here. He was an expert in duplicity. He said, I love you, Jesus, with his actions as far as his nonverbal communication. He said, hell, teacher, my, my teacher, I love you. I'm committed to you. I'm devoted to you. But on the inside, he was seething with disdain and hatred for Jesus. And his hatred found its ultimate culmination at this particular point. And for one last time, Judas cloaks his hatred with the mask of loyalty and love to Jesus. And he feigns devotion to Jesus, kisses him, and calls him master. And then finally, verse 50, the betrayal wraps up. In verse 50, Jesus said, friend. Do you believe that? Friend. Friend, do what you have come for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. That's the betrayal. That's what Mark means when he says, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. That's what he's got in mind. Now, my question is, how did Judas get to this point? How did he get here? How could he be so active in religion? Go so far and still be so treacherous. That's the question. I will tell you, it is a sobering reality to consider. Just how far he was able to go in external religion and yet remain unchanged. Well, we know from the book of Acts that Judas would have been with Jesus in some capacity for about three years. From the time of Jesus' baptism... To this point at the betrayal, Judas would have spent those years with Jesus, the the half of those years being as an apostle in training, with a special intimacy with Jesus, a special focus of Jesus to train him to become an apostle. We're not told when when Judas was called, but we know at some point Judas decided to throw in his lot with the other, or the other disciples who were following Jesus. And then in Mark 3 and other passages, we see that while Judas was following Jesus, Jesus sovereignly selected him to be an apostle. Along with the other disciples, Judas lived incredibly near to Jesus. Relationally, at least on the outside, Judas could hardly have been given a more significant spiritual advantage. No one, except for these other 11, had the opportunity to know Jesus at such a level as Judas. He was constantly exposed to Jesus. 
And he occupied really an enviable position. I mean, think about what we saw uh, in Mark 3. Verses 7 to 12. Crowds were pressing in. Everyone wanted to be with Jesus. And here was Judas, right next to him. And no doubt, uh, that filled Judas's heart with pride. I've got what you want. Uh, Judas really could have hardly been given a more significant opportunity to be with Jesus. But what we learn from Jesus, Judas is that rather than seizing the opportunity that he had been given, he squandered it. He wasted it. On top of his nearness to Jesus, Judas was also commissioned to preach and teach the gospel and call other people to repentance. He was a preacher of the gospel. That's what we see in Mark 6, 7 to 13. Listen to verse 7. And he, Jesus, summoned the twelve. Judas is right there with him. And began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff. He gave them some more instructions. And he said, verse 11, Any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. And verse 12 says this, And they went out and preached that men should repent. Sobering. He was happy to preach to others they should repent and change. Let me tell you about the Bible. Let me tell you what you need to know. Repent. And if you want repent, I'll wipe the dust off my feet and I'll go somewhere else and tell them what they need to do. But he wasn't willing to repent himself. It's a lot easier to tell other people what to do than to do it yourself. Judas was happy to have all the glory of preaching. He wanted it. He wanted that platform. He wanted that podium. He wanted it. He was happy to have it. He was happy to have all the glory that came with preaching and teaching the truth. He was orthodox. But he himself was not submitted to the truth he proclaimed. He wanted the glory, but he didn't want to bring his life underneath the truth. On the outside, he made a great show of his love to God and his righteousness. In fact, so much so that in John 13, after Jesus had washed each one of his disciples' feet, including Judas, Jesus alluded to the fact that one of these men that he had just served so humbly the Son of God, washing their feet, and one of them was a traitor, and Jesus knew it. Jesus referenced the fact that one of them would betray him. So in John 13, verse 21, Jesus said this. You can flip over there if you want. I'm going to cover a few text verses there. John 13, verse 21. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples begin looking at one another. Look at verse 22. The disciples begin looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. This doesn't make sense, Jesus. Who, who, who could it be? And there was, verse 23, reclining on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. That's most likely the apostle John. So Simon Peter, the leader, the guy who always speaks first, he gestured to him and said, 
tell us who it is of whom he's speaking. Uh, for some reason, he doesn't ask Jesus. He, you know, he reaches over to John. Maybe he's learned to stop putting his foot in his mouth for a little while. Maybe he's throwing his friend under the bus. Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. Verse 25, he, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? We don't know. Jesus then answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. That was the sign. I'll dip the bread, I'll give it to him. Whoever gets that bread, that's the betrayer. And after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Verse 28, now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. He had just told them that this guy, here's the bread, here's the, you know, the, the wine, I'm dipping it. This is the one who's going to betray me. And then he says, now what you're going to do, go do it quickly. And they look at each other and they say, what is he talking about? They think, verse 29, they were supposing, because Jesus had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy things we have need of for the feast. Oh, okay, he's probably talking about what we need for the feast. It's like they just, they couldn't comprehend that this guy was going to betray them. And so it's like, it doesn't even register. It's kind of like when you're reading your Bible and something's confusing and you keep reading. You know, it's like, I'll just come back to that later. It's what it seems like. They don't even know what's happening. That doesn't even make any sense. Okay, oh, he's probably getting some things that we need for the feast. Or maybe he's giving something to the poor, verse 29. So, verse 30, after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. Now, the point here that I want to make is that these men seem to have suspected nothing from Judas. In fact, there was an innate trust in Judas to the extent that he was the one in charge of all the money. Judas was the, the keeper of the funds. So there was a high level of trust and confidence in Judas, which makes the pain of his betrayal all the worse. He was their companion, their equal, their familiar friend, as the psalmist says, the man whom they attended synagogue with and prayed with and did ministry with. He was one of them. And from the outside, Judas checked all the boxes. He preached how they preached. He talked how they talked. He walked how they walked. But on the inside, on the inside, the contrast between Judas and and the, the 11 could not have been any more stark. The 11 were slow and dull. They, they, they were slow to get it, but they were growing. And we see throughout the, the New Testament, we see their grow, growing. They see that they're growing in their affection and their love for Jesus. And it's like they just want, it, they want to follow him. You see that. They want to do right. They want to please the Lord. And, and they keep failing. And then finally, the Lord completes his work, and they get it, and they begin to walk. You know, they're like children learning how to walk. They're kind of stumbling. They're not getting it, and we see them stumble all over the place. But Judas, it's different with him. While the 11 were slowly growing in their love and commitment to Jesus, Judas, on the inside, was increasingly skeptical and unaffectionate towards Jesus. He was cold. And the painful reality of this is that the disciples, they just had no idea. Why? Because on the outside, everything was right. They, they couldn't detect that something was wrong, but Jesus knew. Jesus knew. It's a thing about hypocrisy. You can't deceive the king. He knows. His piercing vision sees through your outer righteousness into your hypocrisy, into your treacherous, unbelieving heart. Jesus clearly knew that Judas was the betrayer. We see that in John 13, but we also see it in John 6. After Jesus had said some things that were hard for the crowds to hear, John chapter 6, in verse 60, John says, at this point, many of his disciples when they heard these hard things, said, 
This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Verse, 40, or verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe. Some of you disciples who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe. And who it was that would betray him. He knew. The disciples didn't know. But Jesus who sees the inside, he knew. And then look at verse 66. As a result of this, this saying, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him any longer. How do we know what the difference between a false disciple and a true disciple is? They went out from us because they were not of us. And these men, they leave. But some stay. Look at verse 67. It might surprise you who stays. So Jesus said to the twelve, Judas was one of the ones who stayed. He said to them, you do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter said what we have all said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. What are our options? This is our only option. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, Did I not myself choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Jesus knew. Jesus knew. And it's, you know, it's striking here that Judas hangs on when the other disciples leave. He was willing to endure the embarrassment of a rabbi who was unorthodox to uh, their contemporaries. He was willing to endure the embarrassment of Jesus' teaching for a while. But Jesus knew it was a sham. You know, the other disciples, they looked and said, okay, this is our 12. We got it. These are the ones who can withstand the shame of the crowds, the fear of man. We throw it out. We trust Jesus. We're following Jesus. And they thought... They were all together, but one of them, Jesus told them, was a devil. Judas was not sincerely wanting to follow Jesus, so he cut through some of the shame, some of the challenges, because that's what you do as a hypocrite. You've got to give the perception that I'm with him. And that requires a little bit of pain sometimes. You know, it's kind of like the actor who, you know, he... He endures some, you know, some pain because he's trying to capture the, 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 the glory of some scene. And it hurts a little bit, but it's worth it. And this is what Judas does. But he was a hypocrite. He was after something else. He wasn't after Jesus. He was after something else. And Jesus knew this. He knew it because he knew Judas. He also knew it, though, because this was foreordained. This was... Mark says in Mark 14 that this was according to the Scripture. This was God's plan. And so Jesus knew Judas, but Jesus also knew that this was according to God's decree. If we look back at John 13, verse 18, Jesus says, I do not speak of all of you. All of you. This is after he said they were clean. He says, I don't, I'm not talking about all of you here. There are 12 of you here, but you're not all clean. I know the ones I have chosen. It's John 13, 18. But it is that the scriptures may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. And Jesus knew. He knew it was coming. This is a quote from Psalm 41, verse 9, where King David apparently had been betrayed by an intimate friend and being, brings the pain of his betrayal to the Lord Jesus, or to the Lord in prayer. And John sees the betrayal of Jesus, the true descendant of King David as a fulfillment of the prophetic prayer of Psalm 41, verse 9. It's sort of like, uh, you know, like father, like son. Just as King David was betrayed, so the true king of Israel himself will be betrayed into the hands of a close friend. It's not uncommon for kings to be betrayed. 
And here's a king, greater than David, who's also being betrayed by an intimate friend. And then in John 13, right after, verse 18, verse 19, Jesus goes on to say, From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it occurs, you may believe that I am He. In other words, I'm God. I know everything that's coming about. What's coming is going to rock your world. You don't get it. You think that Judas is one of you. I know he's not. And this is God's word. This is the plan. That one of my own, a faith, a friend, an intimate acquaintance, would be the one who betrays me and thus is the catalyst for my crucifixion. So clearly Jesus knew what was coming. The role of Judas, you know, as he called the twelve, Jesus knew that this one was going to be the traitor. The role of Judas had been decreed. He was to be the betrayer of the Son of God. It was a foreordained role. And when Jesus chose him, he knew he was choosing Judas for this very purpose. So you say, someone says, well, then it was God's fault. It wasn't Judas's fault. If this was God's foreordained plan, then how can Judas be responsible? He was just, you know, a puppet on a string. No, no, no. While there is a tension here between the sovereign foreordination of God and Judas's responsibility, the one does not nullify the other. God is sovereign and he has a decree that will inevitably come to pass, but man is responsible. These are like twin truths, like a railroad track. They never contradict. I love the way Spurgeon put it. It's a long quote, so hang on. He said, if I find taught in one part of the Bible that everything is foreordained, that is true. And if I find in another scripture that man is responsible for all his actions, that is true. And it is only my folly that leads me to imagine that these two truths can ever contradict each other. I do not believe they can ever be welded into one upon any earthly anvil. What he means by that is these are two truths that are always true and seem contradictory to us because we can't bring them together. No matter how great your anvil is, you can't weld them and beat them together. It's not going to work. However, he says, they certainly shall be welded together in eternity. They are two lines that are so nearly parallel that the human mind which pursues them the furthest will never discover that they converge. But they do converge, and they will meet somewhere in eternity, close to the throne of God, whence all truth does spring. In other words, it doesn't make sense to us. They seem like they contradict. These two lines seem like they're at odds. But they do converge in the mind of God. In God's mind, He's sovereign and man is responsible. You can't excuse your sin. That's a helpful image because Judas was not a puppet. Judas's betrayal was foreordained by God according to Scripture, but Judas was no puppet. He was not coerced into becoming the son of perdition. No one twisted his arm to get him to act against his will to betray Jesus. Judas did what he did because... He was seeking to get what he wanted. He did what he did because he wanted what he wanted. That's how it works. His affections. Here's Judas. His affections are inflamed for something that's driving his behavior and exciting him to act. And clearly, from the account of his life, the thing that was driving Judas was not love for Christ. It was something else. And what was it? What was it that drove Judas to betray Jesus? The scripture gives us a few clues as to what that might be. I invite you to you can turn to John 12. In John 12, there's an episode where the true colors of Judas come out. And he sort of shows his hand as to what he's really about. Jesus and the disciples are in Bethany. 
just outside of Jerusalem, and Jesus meets up with Lazarus, whom he had just raised from the dead uh, a few days prior. So John 11, Lazarus is raised from the dead. And now he meets back up, Jesus and the disciples meet back up with a man who's recently raised from the dead. Talk about uh, you know, a, an exciting dinner. And Jesus meets them, meets Lazarus and his sister Martha. And John 12 says this, verse 2. So they made him a supper there, Jesus, a supper there. And Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. And can you imagine that? It's amazing. A man who's in the tomb just days ago. And you can also just imagine how happy Mary and Martha would be. It's our beloved friend, our brother. He was dead and we were weeping. John 11, just go read it. They were very upset. And now he's alive. And they are happy people. Happy, happy people. Happy to be with Jesus. Happy to be with Lazarus. Happy also to know that Jesus is really the Son of God. And so they're overjoyed at who is in their presence. And so verse 3, Mary takes a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard, which is an oil from an Indian plant, highly expensive, and anointed, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with fragrance. This is a woman who knows who she's with. She knows him. So she says, what's the best thing I've got? It's his. I don't have a crown, but this is the most expensive thing I own. Here it is. It's yours. It's an act of love and devotion from the heart. And perfectly fitting. But look at verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Can you imagine? Man raised from the dead. And here's Judas. In the presence of God incarnate. And what is he thinking about? Jesus, this woman is wasting valuable resources. She's pouring them out on the ground. Don't, don't you see that? Haven't you looked at the money box recently? A 300 denarii, a denarii is equivalent of a, a, a day's wage. 300 is a little shy of a year's wage. That's expensive perfume. I don't know if you have ex perfume that expensive, but you probably won't pour it out. You would if you were in the presence of Jesus. But here she, she is, and she, she lays it out. She pours it on the floor uh, at Jesus' feet. And Judas can't comprehend why Mary or anyone else would ever do such a moronic thing. He doesn't get it. This is why I'm saying he doesn't love Jesus. He doesn't know him. He doesn't get it. He knows him. He's with him. He knows all about him. Better than the crowds know about him. But it's just an intellectual ascent with him. He doesn't get who Jesus really is. He has no love for him. And then notice verse 26. Or verse 6, sorry. Now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. That's an insight into the heart of Judas. And the guys hear that and they think, oh yeah, Judas is probably, maybe there's something, Did we, are we being irresponsible? Are we being bad stewards of our finances? Judas says something, but his heart does not mean that. He has no concern, verse 6, he has no concern for the poor. That's what he said, but his, his heart is way, way out of alignment with his speech. The only person that Judas was concerned with was not the poor, was not Jesus, was not the twelve. Who was Judas concerned with? Himself. Judas was only concerned with himself. In Judas' life, everything that happened was all about him. He was always looking for ways to benefit himself. He gave to his own benefit. He served to his own benefit. 
He, he exhibited an appearance of concern for the poor only so that he could increase the treasury box so that he could pilfer, steal the money, and then use it on himself. His external show of righteousness and his concern for other people. It was really and only ever about him. It was just a different way to get on top. And some people, they are financially successful by businesses. They get power, glory, whatever. Um, there are different mechanisms. You know, some people are athletes, and they get glory and power that way. Judas chose to use religion as the way to the top. Religion with Jesus as a way to get power and glory, honor. So he gave an appearance that he loved others and that he was concerned about them. But on the inside, he was only using them to satisfy his own desire for prestige, glory, wealth, and prosperity. Really, for whatever money could buy him. And that, that's just an important aside here. Usually money is just a means to some other end. What people are typically after when they're chasing money is what they can get from it. Power, respect, recognition, security, stability, place in the world, ease, comfort, you name it. So you're a workaholic? Well, you're a workaholic because you have some idol, some thing in your heart that you love more than Jesus that you're willing to sacrifice your family to get. Money is just a way that you can acquire what you really want so that you can use it to please yourself. So the money here, Judas is pilfering of the money bag, it was just a seed form of his lust. He wanted something more, and the money was the pathway to get it. It's interesting that it started with taking a little money here and there from the box. In the language of pilfer, it's an ongoing habitual thing that he would do. This is what he always did. They didn't know that, but they knew in hindsight that he was the one. And he would take a little here, a little there, and then it just began to grow. Because that's what unchecked, unrepentant sin does. Every little sin wants to be a big sin when it grows up. And this little sin of you know, taking a little here, a little there, oh, this is reasonable. And they gave it to us, so I'll take it. And he justified it. And then his justifications got more and more nuanced. Until finally, he's willing to sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. That's the progression. This is where your sin will take you. It's a good habit. Whatever the sin is. Just think, where does this want to take me? For Judas, it was just a piece of silver here, a piece of silver there. But it took him to the betrayal of Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Where does your sin want to take you? That covetousness, that lust, that greed. Think about where it wants to take you. Envision yourself there and think, I don't want to go there. And that will inflame your affections to kill your sin. It's interesting in Matthew 26 immediately following the incident with the perfume. The next episode is Matthew 26, 14. Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give me to betray him? In other words, name your price. I know you want Jesus. How much will you give me if I, if I betray him to you? He's after money. And they say... 30 pieces of silver. How about that? That was the price of a slave. And that was Judas's appraisal of Jesus' worth. Now, 30 pieces of silver will do. And the chief priests agreed with Judas's appraisal. And they said, that's fair. Uh, we'll take it. And so they give him the silver. And he goes and does what he wants. So, Judas was not a puppet. All right? He was not a puppet. He was not um, merely demonically possessed. It just so happened that Judas's will and Satan's will were coalescing. Judas was doing what he did because he wanted what he wants. 
And that want was something more than what he had, and it was something more than love to Christ, and it was chiefly love to himself. And the end of everything Judas did was self-satisfaction. Now, some of you have a pattern of living exclusively, exclusively for yourself. You're the end of everything you do. And friend, I would tell you, that may be little now, but it wants to grow. And the smaller the sin, uh, the more easy it is to crucify. If you let it keep growing, it will be a monster. And a monster is always harder to fight. The little sin is hard to fight, don't get me wrong. It's not easy. But if you let it grow and mature and grow roots into your soul, it will be more and more difficult. This is, this is one of the reasons this is one of the reasons we love our children. We, we love our children. We love our young people, college-age students. Because if you keep living in that sin... It grows. So the quicker you uproot it, uh, the better you will be. So we want to help you do that. It's why we have student ministries. It's why we have Sunday school for our kids to help them see sin and fight it early. If you let it mature, there are so many in here who can testify of 30 years of living in unbelieving paganism. And those sins are deeply entrenched. And now they're here, they're Christians, and they're fighting hard to get rid of sin, to kill it. But it's hard. If you kill it while it's small, it's hard. But it's not as hard as if its roots are 30 years deep. Well, the story of Jesus, Judas is a tragedy. That's true. And it's really, it comes to us as a strong warning. And let me wrap up here. I'm already longer than I intended to be. But let me wrap up here by issuing just a few warnings we can take away from the life of Judas. Number one, the story of Judas is a warning against an uncrucified life. It's a warning against an uncrucified life. Jesus said the entryway into true Christianity is taking up your cross and dying to self. And what we learn in part from the life of Judas is that there is a way you can give the semblance or the appearance of having died to self when in actuality you are only serving yourself and using religion as a way to gratify yourself. When you give, it's for yourself. When you serve, it's for yourself. When you sing, it's about you. It's about your glory. When you preach, it's about your, your glory. You are the center of your universe. You love when you teach and people come up and say, oh, you're so great. You give, oh, you gave so much. And you give so that you get that. You're like the Pharisee who dinged the bell. Here's what I'm giving. And Jesus said to them, what? You get your reward. Your reward is that praise you just received and that stroke of your ego that you so wanted. That's what you get. So it's a warning against living an uncrucified life. Beware if you are the end of everything you do, the purpose of everything you do. The story of Judas is a call for each one of us to check in and make sure we have, all, we have really taken up our cross and are following Jesus. Warning number two, the story of Judas is a warning against squandered opportunity. Wasted opportunity. Judas was with Jesus for three years, one and a half years, in an intimate relationship. He was exposed to the greatest preacher who ever lived, the most orthodox, robust theology ever proclaimed. He was around the most insightful counselor, powerful teacher. He was a man who could bring scripture to bear on Judas's life like no other. A man who lived with perfect integrity. A man who always walked the walk. And Judas was constantly with him. 
Yet exposure to Jesus had no real effect on Judas. It's a reminder for us that exposure to truth is not enough. You can be exposed to the greatest preachers, the greatest counselor, the greatest theologians. You can be around the godliest people on the planet and even act like them. And you can still be a Judas. Orthodoxy will not save you. Orthodoxy will not sanctify you. Orthodoxy, reformed, good, reformed theology in all the right ways, is not enough. God is after your heart. Repentance is from the inside out. It starts with the heart. The Lord sees through your shows of righteousness. He knows you. You don't have to pretend that you are what you're not. Some of you have grown up at Calvary Bible Church. Some of you have been here for decades. You're 20. You're 30. You're 15. You are here week after week, exposed to the gospel, around godly people that love the Lord and love you, and you sit here week in and week out, yet you still have not bowed the knee to Christ. Why is that? What are you waiting on? Friend, I just want to warn you. You can be around truth your whole life and be unchanged. And some of you have been given a remarkable opportunity to grow up in Christian families. You don't want to squander that opportunity. Today is the day of salvation. Don't wait until you feel funny. Don't wait until something, you know, the clouds part open and the, you know, the ray comes through and, and shines on you and says, this is the one. It's not going to happen. That's not how God saves people. Do you love Jesus? Well, take up your cross and follow him. And that starts today. So don't waste your opportunity. Don't be like Jesus or Judas. Be like Jesus. Don't be like Judas. <laughs> be like Jesus. But don't squander your opportunity like Judas. Warning number three. The story of Judas is a warning against unrepentant sin. The love of money, the love of praise, the love of ease and comfort, all of these are heart idols that if left unchecked will lead to your demise. Genesis 4-7, God told Cain that sin is like a crouching animal at the door, at your door. And its desire is for you. That's powerful imagery. It's like a lion sleeping outside your door. And as soon as he hears the steps you getting out of bed? He's there. He's ready. He's ready for you. That's how sin is. It wants you. It desires to destroy you and ruin you. And it's ruined some of you up to this point. And you're here this morning by God's kindness and providence. Today is the day of salvation. Uh, you don't have to be ruined by sin. Jesus conquered it for you. And we can help you see how and know how and repent. But I'm telling you this, church. If there is sin in your heart that you are letting grow, beware. You cannot tame sin. You cannot make an alliance with it. You cannot come to an agreement with it. The nature of sin is that it wants to rule over you. If you let it rule at all, it will soon be a tyrant. That is the way sin is. The only way to overcome it is mastery. Paul calls this crucifying sin. Genesis 4, it's a rule over it, it's mastery. Be in charge, be over it, subdue it. Paul says it's putting sin to death. The only way to beat sin is to go to war with it. Now my question for you is, are you going to war with it? If you're letting it go unchecked in your life, think about where it's going. Where is this wanting to take you? Its desire is for you to ruin you. Do you, do you know that? Do you feel that? Do you sense that? Fourth, the story of Judas is a warning against the nature of greed. The heart of greed is an insatiable desire for satisfaction, self-satisfaction, selfish satisfaction. The problem with greed is that those who bow to it are never satisfied by it. Judas took a little from the coffer, but that was not enough. He went back and back and took more and more. And the culmination of his greed was to sell Jesus for the 30 pieces of silver. And he thought 
that if he could get that money, then he would be satisfied. You're sort of built up to that. Uh, Ten coins didn't satisfy this time. Twenty coins didn't satisfy this time. I need something more. How could I ever get 30 coins? Huh. I could betray Jesus. I bet they'll give me 30 coins for that. He thought if he could get it, he would be satisfied. But the story of Judas, as you know, does not end with Judas's satisfaction. It ends with Judas hanging from a tree. This is the nature of greed. It's insatiable. It always promises great things, but leaves you feeling empty and hopeless. One more toy will not satisfy. One more vacation will not satisfy. A bigger house will not satisfy. One more look will not satisfy. An adulterous relationship will not satisfy. And in one sense, the life of Judas is a parable against this sort of unrepentant greed. The one thing, the one thing that could have satisfied Judas was right in front of him the whole time. But he missed it. Jesus alone can satisfy the God-instilled desires of the human heart. Warning number five. The story of Judas is a warning against a duplicitous life. Judas was a hypocrite through and through. He was an actor. Don't pity him in that sense. I mean, he was a betrayer. He was an actor. He knew what he was doing. He put on the mask of religion in order to get his selfish desires fulfilled. And he was content with duplicity. The double life was the life for him. He was perfectly content to appear one way in public and then in another way in private. It gave him no alarm to be a fraud. Now I will tell you, if you can live comfortably in your duplicity, you should be very concerned. If you can live comfortably in your duplicity, your double life, friend, you should be very concerned. The true Christian is always laboring to bring his life and doctrine into alignment, and he's constantly repenting of his lack of integrity where his life and his confession are not one, and he labors to bring his life into unity with the truth. That's Christianity. If that's not there in your life and you're content to live in the darkness and come to church and put on a show, you should be very, very afraid. And the story of Judas should remind you that Jesus sees through your hypocrisy and He knows your heart. And the only way to true satisfaction is through Christ. So those are some lessons about the life of Judas. Um, I've went very long. But let me just make one clarifying remark. Some of you, I imagine, are feeling the weight of these warnings. And you're genuinely concerned that you might be a Judas. And you wonder, how, how can I know if I'm Judas? How can I know if I've been in this church and I'm a Judas? Well, I would just ask you. The question that is uh, the test. Do you love Jesus? Do you love him? Not do you like him. Not do you like the culture of conservatism. Uh, not do you like the kind of people that go to church. The question is, do you love Jesus? That's the test. In Judas's heart, there was no love for Christ but only a self-love that sought to use Jesus to get a leg up in the world. You were you not, listen to this, you are not a Judas because you feel weak. You're not a Judas because you're sinning. That doesn't make you a Judas. You're not a Judas because you keep failing. You're not a Judas because you're not the parent you need to be or the teacher you need to be. You're not a Judas because you're struggling to put these sins to death in your life. That doesn't make you a Judas, friend. What makes you a Judas 
is a, a heart that has no love to Christ. And additionally to that, a show that you actually do love Him. If you let that brew in your life, your betrayal of Christ is inevitable. It's coming. But if you love Jesus and you continually turn from the sins that ensnared Him, and you follow the Lord, the Good Shepherd, you're not going to betray Jesus. You're secure, John 10. All is well with you. But if you love Jesus, you will live for Him and live like Him. You will be turning from sin and turning to righteousness. So my hope is that we would learn the lesson of Judas together as a church. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this lesson. And we pray, Father, that you would use it powerfully in our lives and that you would make us into faithful followers of Christ. Fill our hearts with love for Jesus. And Lord, help us to turn from these sins that ensnared Judas and to live holy for you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.